Good morning. I am Pastor Dave Heinrichs, and uh, it's great to be together and just, yeah, welcome to everyone who's here in the building. And if you're joining us online, just great to have you joining us too. We are uh, somewhat a third into the way into our series on the book of Daniel. So um, if you haven't uh, been with us yet, you need to go back and read the first three chapters. They are fantastic stories that capture our imagination, but also tell us of the amazing, wonderful God that we serve. Well, when I was in grade seven, myself and the rest of the boys who were in grade seven with me, we thought that we ruled. Now, ruled was an 80s slang that meant awesome or cool. Anybody else out there ruled when they were in grade seven? A few, yes, I see those hands. Yeah, kind of like that fluorescent jacket that I wore to school every day. That thing ruled. Um, but as the oldest boys in elementary school, we also thought we ruled the roost, right? That we were in charge of the school, particularly we were in charge of the playground. So we were the ones who decided what form of tag we played at lunchtime, whether frozen or lava. We were the ones who decided whether Robbie Schmidt really did cheat when it came to the running races and if he would be penalized. By the way, yes, Robbie was a cheater. And we were also the ones who decided who would get to play on the single basketball court that our elementary school had. And when we felt like playing, it was us who got to play. At least, you know, we thought we were the lords of the playground. At least we thought we were until one morning when before school where we felt like, okay, we wanted to play basketball and we kicked some of the younger kids off the court. We didn't realize who was looking on from above. Looking out of his office window was our principal, Mr. Lancaster. Now, Mr. Lancaster was a big man. He was completely bald. There was not a single hair on his head and he always wore these stiff, white collar dress shirts that were cut off at the sleeve, right? He kind of looked like Mr. Clean. Remember Mr. Clean? Yeah, he looked like him without the smile. And uh, when he saw what we had done, Mr. Clean called all the grade seven boys into the gymnasium for a little conversation with us. He explained to us that as the oldest, we were leaders in the school and that the younger kids looked up to us so that we should be kind to them. He also reminded us that we didn't own the basketball court, the playground, or anything else at the school, but there was an authority that reigned even higher than us, him. <laughs> and just to make sure that we understood this, we spent each recess and lunch for the rest of that week picking up garbage. And I'm pretty sure that the younger grades, they rejoiced at that sight. Needless to say, once we returned to the playground, our rule was far more benevolent than it had been before, and we no longer kicked kids off the basketball court. That's because none of us wanted to pick up any more garbage, and we didn't know who might be looking at us from up above when we weren't watching. Now, today we see something similar in Daniel chapter 4. A strange story, but one that is both good news for both the oppressed, but also for oppressors as well. There is a higher authority. He is keeping watch from above, 
And also, we would do well to realize that we are not in charge, but to recognize that heaven rules. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you, let's look at Daniel chapter 4. This is quite a long chapter, but it's an incredible story. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in the branches, and from it, every creature was fed." In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and broads remain in the ground in the grass of the field." Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth and let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none, can, none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirits of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the, the, distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, 
cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump with the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came down from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And at the end of the, that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble what an incredible story well in the sixth century when it is believed that this account was given babylon was the world power and nebuchadnezzar was the empire's totalitarian ruler not only was Babylon's kingdom vast, having conquered the neighboring nations, but it was incredibly wealthy, and it had all these magnificent buildings that were constructed under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. This left Nebuchadnezzar not only with this feeling of euphoria and proud of all that he had accomplished, but also with a feeling of superiority and supremacy over everything in his world. Now, the audience that this account is written to are primarily those that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered. People whose nations he had pillaged of their wealth to fill Babylonian coffers. 
people that he had exiled to Babylon to work in his government or perhaps to even be construction workers for these fabulous buildings that he he takes credit for. These people would have been tempted to despair. They would have been humiliated at their place in the world. They would have felt hopeless like they were at the mercy of an erratic king whose tyrannical reign seemed certain. And we may feel similar at times. Not that we live under a dictatorship, but we can find ourselves at the mercy of something more powerful than ourselves, and we may feel, you know, oppressed by it. Maybe it's an employer or a teacher, a parent or a spouse. Maybe the power that we feel oppressed by, it's not even a person at all, but it can be our circumstances, right? Like a debt or a disease, maybe an addiction. But neither Nebuchadnezzar's feelings of supremacy nor these exiles' feelings of helplessness tell the whole story, and neither do our feelings. You see, Daniel 4 reminds us that the Most High God is keeping watch and that we need to recognize that heaven rules. And this is the conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar comes to about all that has taken up place in this account. It's the purpose why he's even writing it down and sharing it with all the nations of the earth. He says in verses 2 and 3, It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. It's his pleasure. It was performed for him. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's what this is about, an enduring kingdom. God's dominion from generation to generation. The king recognizes that heaven rules, not him. And that was the lesson he desperately needed to learn. Now, this isn't the first disturbing dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had in the book of Daniel. Back in chapter 2, he has a dream about this huge statue, and only Daniel, out of all the wise men in Babylon, are able to interpret that dream for him. So it's interesting to me that he goes back once again to the wise men of Babylon and asks them to interpret the dream rather than going to Daniel straight away. And once again, Babylon's wise men are found to be incompetent. But according to every commentary that I have read on this chapter, this dream, it's pretty self-explanatory, especially to those who are in the business of dream interpretation. So were the Babylonian wise men really not able to interpret it, or did they fear being the messenger of this nightmare to this erratic king? Let's take a closer look at the dream. In verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar says, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. He goes on to say how big and strong the tree was and how beautiful, and it provided food and shelter for all the creatures of the world. Now, throughout the Bible and ancient literature, a tree is a symbol of fertility, growth, protection, and prosperity. And in the ancient Near East, it was common for kings to see themselves embodying this theme, right? They saw themselves as the life giver, sustainer, and protector of the nation, that they were the ones who guaranteed their empire's life and destiny. 
So it's pretty obvious that the tree in this dream represents Nebuchadnezzar himself, and Daniel, he confirms this in verse 22. But the dream also reveals that Nebuchadnezzar not only sees himself as important, but supreme. Verse 10, the tree is in the middle of the land. It's in the center of everything. Verse 11 says, its top touched the sky. So its importance is as high as the heavens, and it's visible to the ends of the earth, and it feeds every creature. So Nebuchadnezzar believes his influence has no bounds, that he is the ultimate giver and sustainer of life. But things begin to look grim for the tree, starting in verse 13, when Nebuchadnezzar says, In the vision I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. What is that all about? First of all, the presence of a holy one, a messenger from heaven, tells us that the source of this dream is divine and that it's not from this world and that the orders the messenger is delivering, they come from someone who is not subordinate to King Nebuchadnezzar but has greater authority than he could ever imagine. Next, the command to cut the tree down is a removal of it from its place of prominence, power, and privilege losing all of its splendor and nobility and being humiliated. Driven away from society to live amongst the animals and to live like them. So this one is going from the highest of highs all the way down to the lowest of lows. The meaning of this dream is awful. No wonder the Babylonian magicians, they probably feigned incompetence. And in verse 19... Daniel says that his thoughts terrified him. This is not the kind of pronouncement that you want to be telling your employer, especially one who has the ability to take your life. For Daniel, it's not even something that he would wish on those who've taken him captive. But this judgment doesn't come without hope. You see, the orders to leave the stump and the roots and to bind it with bronze and iron means that this tree is not to be killed off entirely and that its place is to be protected. So according to Daniel, though, this judgment, it's not even inevitable. It doesn't have to happen. In Daniel 27, or sorry, in verse 27, Daniel advises the king. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. It reminds me of the prophet Jonah. He heads to Nineveh because Nineveh is a wicked city. And he goes there and he proclaims, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. However, the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed. And all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. The king of Nineveh issued a decree saying, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. You see, judgment is not inevitable. And it's not even what God desires. What God desires are changed lives 
transformed hearts. In Ezekiel 33, he says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. In verse 27, it also clarifies something else for us. By acknowledging that God is sovereign, it means more than just admitting or accepting that, you know, he is in control and that we are not. It means more than that. Recognizing that heaven rules, it requires a response from us. That we take some action. It's obedience. Particularly, it's talking about renouncing sin and doing what is right. God doesn't just want people who concede that he exists or that he's in charge. What he wants is all of us to turn from our own ways and going the way we want and turning towards his life-giving ways and really live. And he has given us the way to do that by renouncing and turning from our sins and doing what is right as we follow the lordship of Jesus in our lives. For Nebuchadnezzar, renouncing his sin meant specifically stopping wickedness and being kind to those that he had oppressed. His sin was characterized both as pride but also injustice. The story implies in verse 28 that Nebuchadnezzar was given an entire year to take Daniel's advice to heart, but he did not. Now, if we consider how devastating this punishment was, to some people, they may think a year doesn't seem like a lot of time to do the kind of self-reflection and character transformation that's required of Nebuchadnezzar. But imagine those who were being oppressed. I'm sure that that year felt to them like an eternity, that justice delayed can feel like justice denied. But remember what 2 Peter 3 says. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And like a thief, Nebuchadnezzar's day came unexpected to him. Even as the words were on his lips, verse 31 says. I'm sure in the year that was leading up to this moment, he must have thought that, you know, Daniel got the interpretation all wrong or that the, the warning of this impending doom coming from heaven, that it was just an empty threat. But as Isaiah 55 says, my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve for the purpose for which I sent it. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his, and his fingernails like claws of a bird. Now before we speak of Nebuchadnezzar's condition, I want to be clear that this story is not making any statements about mental health. 
It is not making any psychological points. It is making theological ones. And it is saying that we need to recognize that heaven rules. You see, the delusion that Nebuchadnezzar was suffering from was the idea that he was supreme over all things, that he was accountable to no one, and that he could treat people ruthlessly and get away with it. You see, he had already lost his true humanity before this punishment ever came down. It's only now where his outward behavior finally gives expression to what's going on inside, the extent of his false beliefs, that the two of them match. Like an animal, he failed to recognize God. Like an animal, Nebuchadnezzar acted beastly towards other people. But what could God possibly desire to accomplish by punishing Nebuchadnezzar like this? What purpose could this serve? I don't think God is just punishing Nebuchadnezzar. I think this is God disciplining him, hoping that this will be corrective and not just punitive. Remember, this is not about giving God glory as if God needs Nebuchadnezzar to admit that he is in charge. This is not even about humbling Nebuchadnezzar alone, right? This is about God caring for his world, caring for the oppressed, for the nation of Babylon, and even caring for this king himself, this king who is the most powerful political entity in the known world. And the danger of his pride is extreme because he controls the lives of countless human beings and he enjoys great wealth, prestige, and power. And only when those who are in power recognize that God is sovereign and that they are accountable to God, are they able to lead in such a way that brings life like a leader should or bears fruit like a tree is supposed to. And this should serve as a warning, not only to world leaders in our day, but also to all of us who have positions of authority. This is a warning to pastors, to teachers, to parents and grandparents, to employers, those of us with privileges like wealth or higher education. Only when we acknowledge God's reign and rule in our lives and the places where we have authority and the privilege that we have to be able to use them in such a way that we will finally be able to use them where we bear good fruit. And that's the purpose of God's discipline in our lives. It's never meant to be punitive. It's meant to be corrective, productive, to bear good fruit. Hebrews 12 says, Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord's dis disciplines the one he loves and he chastens or he humbles Everyone he accepts as a child. Endure hardship as discipline. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one who has ever suffered a humiliation in order to learn a lesson. When I first became a youth pastor... Uh, I haven't even started telling the story. He's already laughing at me. <laughs> Another humiliation. There you go. Um, yeah, when I first became a youth pastor, uh, I had this one student who showed up 
to youth at least a good hour before youth started every Wednesday night and also wasn't picked up until about 45 minutes after youth ended every Wednesday. Shout out to parents out there. Pick your kids up on time, right? And the student was one evening just annoying myself and the, and the youth staff so much, and I made just a careless joke. I said something along the lines of, it's no wonder your mom wants you here early and doesn't want to pick you up. Yeah. Now, the student laughed it off like it was a lame joke and didn't really mean much, but I found out later from their mother at church that those words really stung. And I have to say, in that moment when I was confronted, it was hard not to defend myself or to feel justified. But in that moment, I had to eat humble pie. And I had to say, no, you're right. I was wrong. I need to go find them and apologize. But though this was embarrassing, it was also an opportunity for me to learn how to steward my position and my leadership better over those who were in my care and to be careful with my words. And it turned out really well in this situation, and certainly this would not be the last time where I would need to learn this lesson. So caution to you all. I'm still learning, but I think I'm getting better at it. I think I'm producing better fruit. And that's the whole point of discipline. And that appears to be what happened here with Nebuchadnezzar, that his discipline results in better fruit. The passage says that he remained in his condition until seven times passes, and we don't know exactly how long that is. Seven in the Bible, it's a particularly symbolic number. It means perfect or complete. So, you know, God's the ultimate parent. This was the perfect amount of discipline. And when it was over, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 34 that I raised my eyes towards heaven. This means that he finally came to acknowledge God's ultimate superiority and his own place in the world, which is pretty insignificant when you think about it. This is confirmed by Nebuchadnezzar's words in verses 34 and 35, where he says, Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with, his, with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Finally, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes heaven rules and he is restored not only in his mind and body but also now back into his position and the chapter comes to a close and we don't hear about Nebuchadnezzar again in the book of Daniel or the rest of scripture. Did his rule become benevolent? Was he kind to the oppressed? We don't know. It seems to end on a hopeful note but you know the question is What about us? Do we recognize that heaven rules? The Bible tells us that if we want to recognize heaven rules, then it's by putting our faith and our hope and trust in Jesus. And if we look at these two kings side by side, Jesus and Nebuchadnezzar, the contrast between the two is pretty astonishing. Nebuchadnezzar was an earthly king who built his empire by committing acts of violence, by enslaving others while enriching himself. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself only to be humiliated by God, and ultimately, he just disappears off the scene. 
He's now just some figure in history. But Jesus, Philippians 2 says, is a heavenly king who builds his empire through acts of nonviolence and peace. Jesus sets free those who have been enslaved, and he emptied himself in order to enrich others rather than himself. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross, only to be exalted to the highest place in all of heaven by God. And ultimately, everyone will bow down and confess Jesus as king because that's exactly where history is heading. It's heading to Jesus, right? Jesus is not only the fulfillment of history, but Jesus is where it's all going. Life under the rule of Lord Jesus is our future. In Jesus, God himself went through shame to bring about our redemption, suffering humiliation on our behalf to free us from our disgrace and invite us into the glory of his eternal kingdom. If we would recognize that heaven rules, if we would put our trust in him and allow him to to be our Lord and to lead our lives and to follow him. There's some takeaways from this passage that we can take to heart and that would help us to follow Christ better. First is recognizing that God's sovereignty is good news, especially for the oppressed. It's good news for the oppressed. Whether you're oppressed by people or systems or circumstances, God's sovereignty means that oppressive powers and time are limited. This doesn't necessarily make that what you might be enduring right now any easier, but it does mean that it's not the end of the story. And it means that oppression will end one day and that God will hold oppressors accountable for their actions. The purpose of stories like this, like the exodus from Egypt, or even stories like the empty tomb, is that they demonstrate the power of God over seemingly all-powerful evil, and they make it possible for us to continue to believe that heaven rules in these difficult in-between times. So first of all, we need to recognize that God's sovereignty, it is good news. Second, the story should serve as a warning to all of us who are in positions of authority and leadership that we are responsible to God and that we will be held accountable particularly for how we treat the vulnerable within our care. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Jesus gives a warning, and this warning is specifically given to those who are caring for children, but I think this warning applies to, you know, to other people who are vulnerable within our care. But the story doesn't offer just a warning, right? It also offers guidance and grace that we can take Daniel's advice. We can renounce our sin. We can do what is right. We can show kindness to the vulnerable. And so it's a warning, but it's also guidance and grace in this story. And finally, I think that this passage demonstrates how we should behave when it comes to justice and mercy. This one's hard. 
Daniel finds himself to be in a really unique position, right? He has a place of privilege, like Nebuchadnezzar says, you are the chief magician of all the magicians. But remember, he's in exile. Daniel's against, he's there against his own free will. But he demonstrates a willingness to do justly and to love mercy by using his opportunity before Nebuchadnezzar, though it was risky, to speak out against the king's injustices and to also speak up for the marginalized. But he also shows compassion to the king. He's not wanting Nebuchadnezzar to endure such a horrible punishment. Daniel didn't look to satisfy his own personal desires for justice, nor did he allow the hurts that he had suffered to rob him of his compassion and his desire for mercy. He wanted to see Nebuchadnezzar change and become the kind of king that God wanted him to be. It's a difficult thing for us to do to balance this justice and mercy, isn't it? I think, humanly speaking, we'll never do it perfectly. We will never be as merciful as some people would desire us to be, and we would never, you know, give as much justice as others long for us to give. I think that's why Micah 6.8 is such an important verse, and it's, you know, teach us so much. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, But the key in all of this is for us to walk humbly with God. If we are to ever come close to getting this balance between justice and mercy right, then we're going to need great amounts of humility, that we are going to need a close walk with Jesus, allow the Spirit of God to speak into our lives, to convict us for the wrong that we've done for our hardened hearts. We're going to need to recognize that He is Lord, that heaven rules, and that we don't. Lord, have mercy on us. Thank you that you do. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer with the worship team come on up? Hmm. God of justice and mercy, we are so grateful that you are in charge and that we are not, that you get these things perfectly. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. Thank you for how merciful you've been to me. I pray for all of us, and most of us do have areas in our lives where we carry authority, where we are leaders. Would you help us to handle that privilege and power with grace, with humility, and in constant prayer with you? Let us pray. Be kind and show the kindness uh, to others that we first have experienced from your hand, our loving God. Just pray, Lord, that you would just do a great work in us. And would you, throughout this week, remind us that we don't rule, but you do, and that we might take great hope in that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.